Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bad to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. How you doing? I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and our guest today is going to take us inside the walls of our nation's prisons in order to share what it's like to survive one of the toughest careers out there, being a correctional officer. It's something he's been doing on his own for over three years now, too, uh, talking about this kind of thing on his own podcast, aptly titled the Prison Officer Podcast. And oddly enough, the first time we broached the topic of corrections was back in episode 19 with Robert Greenwood, who incidentally was just featured on the Prison Officer Podcast a few weeks back. So uh, we'll talk to him a little bit about that. But before we bring him in, allow me to bring in our host, Mike Warren. To those of us like me, not in law enforcement, we may have a limited view of what a job in corrections really encompasses on a daily basis. I know I got a glimpse of that with Robert Greenwood, and I think we're going to get uh, a little bit more information about that today, at least someone who's not involved in that world. It's interesting, uh, as somebody with a, a law enforcement background like mine, my interactions with that side uh, of the law enforcement community, it was limited to dropping off uh, prisoners at, at the county jail, which is different than prisons, sometimes having to go to prisons to interview suspects uh, in crimes. But it was one of those things, to be very honest with you, you get there, you do your job, and then you get the hell out of there. Prison is a scary place, even when you're going through and you're one of the good guys. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation today. And I'm always wondering you know how how it's portrayed in movies and tv and juxtapose that with what it's you know in real life that kind of thing and what if my view is slanted or skewed so it'll be interesting to uh to hear directly from our guest today when you find somebody that that truly is a subject matter expert in an area that you're not familiar with that's the type thing that really gets me excited so i've been looking forward to this conversation we're going to have today because i want to learn more and uh, i think that you want to learn more just like me so Mm -hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit more about him and let's bring him on well our guest today retired with more than 29 years of experience working in the field of corrections both on the state and federal level during his career he led special response disturbance control and canine teams not only is he a correctional consultant specializing in the use of force and physical security but he's also an author and as i mentioned earlier for the past three and a half years he is the host of the prison officer podcast i'm going to make sure i say his last name right he told me that i could say it any way i wanted but uh, we welcome on michael cantrell Cantrell. Either I said it both ways, so I'm just going to make sure that I get it right. <laughs> Thank you for uh, reaching out to us. You reached out to us on uh, Facebook, and we we're able to get our schedules coordinated and get you on the podcast. And it's got to be nice to be sitting on the other side of things because you're in the podcasting world. So it's got to be nice to just sit back and have somebody ask you the questions. Yeah, a little nerve wracking. You don't have your own control of it. But uh, no, I've listened to your guys's podcast several times. I really enjoy what you do. And you can pronounce my name either way. I worked in prison, so I've been called a lot worse than either way you pronounced it. So. I was trying to think what words might rhyme with your last name to, to get more of the creative ones, but I'm not very good yeah. at that. I, I don't even think they tried to rhyme. <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? Right. So, so I want to start off as I was doing my research 
finding out more about you. Uh, one of the things that I think I found is that you are a military veteran. Uh, for a short time. I was in the military, went in there for a little bit, had to come out of there uh, early when training. And then um, I got into some government jobs and just kept going down that road. But I've worked around the military and worked on some military bases as a civilian, but I was only in the military for a few months. What branch were you in? This is is a test right here. I was in the army. Uh, There you go. Now, see, that's a sign of intelligence. So you and I can continue the conversation (laughs) right there. Now, now I I did hear something interesting when you were a guest on on another podcast. You were doing some work on an island. Yes. And uh, I wonder if you could just tell me what that was about, because to me, again, the the, everybody, our listeners know uh, I'm really heavy on the the dork side. So uh, (laughs) what was that all about? Well, I had an uncle who worked at Tonopah Test Range and at Area 51. Uh, so he was working private contract with the government and told me about a job that had come open. I was in the middle of jobs. And uh, he said, if you go over there and work hard, you can probably move up. And uh, so I went over there as a dishwasher and the island was Johnston Atoll. It was a mile and a half long and a half mile wide. And uh, there were about 1,100 people on there, 84 cars, 1,300 bicycles. Uh, it's basically an airstrip in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I got to spend every day after work face down in the ocean on some of the most beautiful coral reefs you've ever seen in your life, untouched out there. But uh, our our mission was destroying all the chemical weapons from World War II. So the reason they picked Johnston Atoll is because the trade winds blow one way 360 days of the year. And the the people that worked there lived on one end of the island, and the other end of the island was bunkers full of mustard gas and nerve gas and <laughs> that kind of stuff. And uh, so they worked on that. I think they did it for like 20 years. I worked for Raytheon and Holmes and Narver. No kidding. So that's actually part of what got me into corrections because I worked there as a dishwasher, was there a couple of months and they promoted me to cook. I worked my way on up to a a second cook, a line cook with them. And when I was back on leave, fell in love, (laughs) decided I need to stay home now. (laughs) So um, I saw an ad in the paper at Missouri State Penn and it said cooks wanted. So I called him up and said, uh, you know, fill out an application for a cook. And the lady called me back a couple of weeks later. She said, we don't need cooks. We need COs. And I said, what's a CO? I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it kind of all worked in a pattern there. But but isn't it amazing how many career choices have been influenced by falling in love? I mean, seriously, it absolutely if is. you want to talk about something that changes careers and changes geographic location, that's probably the number one thing right there, isn't it? Oh, I guarantee it. Yeah, we all do that at some point. You know, we decide that's where we need to be at that moment in life. When we invest ourselves. It worked well, out. It turned out pretty good for you, especially since, since you didn't even know what a CO was going in uh, to this interview. So yeah. w- when when this recruiter, when this this HR person said, hey, we don't need cooks, we need COs. And, and after you found out what a CO was, what was it that made you say, eh, OK, I'll give that a shot? Like I said, you know, I was looking and I stayed with this woman that I fell in love with. We've been married 31 plus years now. So it was worth it. I don't know. I was looking for stability at that point. You know, Uh, I was looking for health insurance, retirement, all that kind of stuff. So that seemed like a good place to start. And I did see that, you know, there was places to go from there. It didn't seem like I was just going to 
stop. You know, there was options. Right. Did she sugarcoat what the job entailed or did she or did she just was she fully honest with you? Um, I talk a little bit about it in one of my books. I say, uh, you know, she told me that a, a CO enforces rules and that was all she said. A CO <laughs> does so much more than that. I've held the hands of inmates as they died because nobody else was in that room. I've ran to fights. I've pulled inmates down from suicides. I've, you know, been out in the middle of the night with a flashlight and a 38 revolver chasing escapees so for somebody to put a one sentence on what a co does was just crazy she almost makes it sound like you're a hall monitor yes and that that's part of the job it certainly is right yeah but but i want to uh, just bring something up here uh, because you mentioned sure. it because i one of the things that we've talked about on our podcast uh several times is the problem with hiring retention in the law enforcement community right now and and it's Mm -hmm. not just on the roadside it's not just uh, in the dispatch side but it's also on the correctional side money is not the overall motivator for most of the people that come into this job but a lot of people that come into this job are seeking that stability that comes or used to come with this type of job a regular pay with mm-hmm. health benefits because you're not making a bunch of money you, you, you need health benefits and that long-term security of a retirement it's not the only factor but you see a lot of places removing those things and we wonder why as a profession we can't get qualified people to apply absolutely and they say that it doesn't matter as much to this generation but i don't know that that's true i i know my son is putting into a 401k so is my daughter they're looking at retirement at some point so i don't think that's true i will say i've had this discussion a lot lately and the other thing that we're removing because of staffing and because we perceive that we don't have time for it is the training i will tell you when you put an officer inside a prison that first day they're scared they they don't know what they're doing you know it, it is an unnatural place for a human to be and if you don't put in the time and the effort to make them feel knowledgeable to make them feel like they have people around them and that they're secure that they understand the way the system works you will have officers who start looking to inmates to answer these questions we've got to bring the training back we're saving money by not sending people out there to training and we're that's part of our retention right there in my opinion i you know i think i could go work at mcdonald's on my first day and and make my way through without being trained properly but if i'm going to be a, a correctional officer I want to make sure that I am properly trained and I know the ins and outs of everything. That's just me, but I would hope that that's the goal, you know? Absolutely. You've got to have that self-confidence to be able to, because I remember the first time I looked at a 50-year-old tatted Aryan Brotherhood leader and said, no, go back to your cell. You know, I'm 21 years old. <laughs> you know, that was that's not that's not normal. And I was scared to death, you know, uh, but I stood there and said it till he did it. And I never did know whether he listened to me or the two officers behind me, but it didn't matter. We accomplished the mission. But you have to be have self-confidence. You have to be able to walk with your shoulders back and your head high in a prison in order to do that job. It's been my experience uh, during my career that the better prepared the professional is the safer it is for the people that they're dealing with it's not just safer Mm -hmm. for the officer but it also increases the safety 
of, in your case, the inmates that you're charged with keeping in place, but also protecting. Absolutely. You talked about the media. That's the part they never show in the media is the fact how many inmates we protect and how many of those inmates want to do their time without drama, without killings, without suicides, without drugs, without any of that. They just want to do their time and they want to go home. And it's our job to provide a prison where most of them can do that and keep them safe from the, you know, the part that doesn't. It's just like society. You have a part in society that doesn't want to follow the rules. They don't want to do the right thing. But that's not everybody. Most of us want to mow our yard on Sunday and have a beer. So uh, I think that doesn't get portrayed a lot in our media. Well, I I think you're probably somewhat like me, which is a a phrase that most people don't want to hear is that they're like me. But (laughs) I am pretty capable of handling myself. Uh But that doesn't mean I want to have to handle myself, especially at home. I would imagine that there are people that in the prison system that they are probably more terrified of what is going on than you are. And those are the ones that, that are preyed upon in these systems. And you, your job is to help protect them. Absolutely. They live there 24 hours a day. You know, I only lived there 16 when I was working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, we just do a lot of overtime. That's why I say that. No, absolutely. They they don't want weapons around them, you know, because when that comes out, you know, and this fight happens, they could be the one not going home. Like it or not, a lot of them have a reason to go home. They have family. They have kids. They have mothers, fathers, the same as everybody else. So a lot of times you'll, and they call it snitching, but you'll have inmates come up to you and go, hey, there's some stuff hid over here. And that's why they're doing that, unless they're the competition and they want you to take out the other, you know, the other person selling whatever. But most of the time, it's I don't want that in my housing unit. I want to go to sleep tonight without one eye open. It would seem that those that have something to look forward to, as you described it, a reason to go home, Mm -hmm. that those are the ones that can be managed. It, It is those that without hope, that's their their domain from here on out, those would seem to be the ones that would typically be most dangerous for you. Sure, sure. And the ones that we talk about, the reasonable ones with hope, a lot of times what they need is that's where we need the uh, rehabilitation and the retraining because they don't make good decisions. You know, they have a, a long history of not making good decisions, but it doesn't mean that they're the violent ones like we were talking about who have no hope. And when we talk about it ends up in the news quite a bit, you know, segregation and and 24 hour lockdown. And they talk about the how bad these things are. There are humans in this world who you can't manage outside of a cell. And the public doesn't see that because they're hidden. They're behind the walls. Matter of fact, they're behind a couple of walls. But I still have to walk in there every day. I still have to feed this guy three times a day, get him out three times a week for shower, recreate him five times a week. I have to handle him. I have to put cuffs on him and bring him outside of that cell. That That's another place where the hiddenness of what we do doesn't get out to the public and they don't understand that there's just people out there that we take care of the boogeyman that you don't want in your house and we keep them from going back out there but as you said there are people that just want to go in there are people that want to go in do their time and go home but they're serving along people that uh, like you said have no cares in the world and they just want to you know mm-hmm. do their thing and we're putting them together and that seems like that's counterproductive would you wouldn't you say 
It is. I will say it's better now than any other time in the history of prisons. I mean, literally, there were times where everybody from uh, the bottom to the top got lumped in the same prison. You know, with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, we have four different levels of prisons. So we are segregating them. And, and the ones with the lower problems or with the lower charges are at camps and stuff. And then you can go up to an administrative, you know, maximum security where we're handling the basically the Hannibal Lecters of the world. And there really are some evil inmates out there that you can't imagine what they do. It hasn't been that long ago since we had one kill one in their cell. And I don't know how graphic you get on here, but he actually ate part of the other inmate. That doesn't get much news time. What gets news time is when one escapes or when one dies in custody and then they go after the correctional officers. Rightly so sometimes, but not always. Maybe that's because we don't want to hear it. The public doesn't want to hear that they just well that's over there we won't deal with it absolutely there was a deal made 100 plus years ago and the deal was more than 200 years ago you're looking at basically capital or corporal punishment when something happened either you know you got held up in you know those stocks in front of the community or you got killed and hung or something like that that was the only punishments we had prisons didn't exist longer than that And at some point, society said, here, I'm going to give you some of my treasure and I'm going to give the government some of my freedom. And you're going to take this stuff away from me where I don't have to see it, deal with it or be part of it. I want to go over here. And as long as I'm good, you're going to handle that for me. And so that's where we're at. The public is comfortable with that deal that they made. Don't get me wrong. I think they're happy that they don't see it, hear it or have anything to do with it. But that does leave those people who walk inside the walls and who walk inside those prisons. And we call them the forgotten cops. We're doing a hard job. We're busting our asses every day, keeping those people inside the wall. But nobody gets to see us drive by and play basketball with the kids in the neighborhood or stop at a lemonade stand or they don't see us. We're we're hidden. It's one of those things where when corrections make the news is almost always for something bad. It's either for, for, for misbehavior on the part of the correctional officers or there was a failure in security and someone has escaped. And neither, neither one of those are good press for the no. COs out there doing the job. Yeah, I can keep 3,000 inmates in a jail today. Nobody cares. One gets out. <laughs> it's, it's news for three, four days until we get them. You know, uh, it, it's kind of a lopsided expectations. And when I was doing the research, I think I saw that your dad was a firefighter. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. My dad was a firefighter. And one of the things that I've mentioned it uh, often here, it, it just we, we tend to see families that have a, a legacy of public service. But but what I want to ask you is, did, did your dad have any reservations or, or did he offer you any advice? Because he, he works in a dangerous job. And, and now you're talking about going and doing this dangerous job that had to have been concerning to him and other members of your family. I really don't think it was but I don't think they knew anything about my job. Now, I grew up in a household. My dad was a firefighter. We knew every police officer, firefighter, city manager. I mean, we hung out. That was the circle of friends that my parents had. Cops would stop by on their lunch break when my mom fixed chicken and dumplings because that was she was really good at that, you know, so she'd have two or three bowls laid out there for them to take a break. So I grew up like that in public service 
and went into corrections with a little thought in the back of my head that that was public service. I still think it is, but I don't think it's looked at that way. My dad, I, I don't really think that he ever considered that it was any more dangerous than what he did, but I don't think dad knew what went on in there either. He fell through a roof one time. He was, you know, he's been on so many, he was on an emergency unit uh, rescue for 19 of those 20 years. So he saw a lot of stuff. I don't think he ever thought about the danger that I was in. Huh? If he did, he never expressed it. You're, you're one of those people that, uh, if I if I remember correctly, you started off in, in state prisons. Mm-hmm. But then you transferred over to the federal side of things. And, right. and so Brent and I, we were talking, this is something that interests both of us. At their basic level, what is the biggest difference or differences between the state side versus the federal side? The prison side of it, I think the biggest difference is the gangs. In state prison, you're going to see fewer gangs controlling more. And in the federal system, I think we're up to tracking, I know it's well over 40 different gangs inside the system, but they tend to be smaller. So that was one of the first things I noticed. Now, of course, on a personal side, you know, it's it's the retirement, it's the benefits, that kind of stuff. The job's the same, state or federal. We're a little more cleaned up maybe in federal. They have more money to spend. Um, they get to be more choosy about who they prosecute and take into their jails at a federal level. You know, the the states don't get to be as picky about that. They get whatever's left over. And then, you know, even counties probably have to deal with less than that. Yeah, it's the money. It's the which is great for the officers, access to training, access to, you know, that type of stuff that I didn't get at the state. The camaraderie was much the same because when I walked into Missouri State Pen in, in 1992, that was still being called the bloodiest 47 acres in America. You know, that prison was built in 1838. I think it had 3,200 inmates while I was there uh, in this 47-acre prison. I HR left that out of the conversation. <laughs> well, you have to walk through a pretty big old block wall. So if you didn't notice, you know, it, it might kind of be on you there. <laughs> yeah, it was off the hook. I mean, staff assaults and inmate assaults and killings like I didn't see in my career past that. Uh, it was a very violent place at the time. Aryan Brotherhood, uh, the Muslims pretty much split 50-50 that yard. You didn't see much else than that. But like you guys know, when you go through stuff like that, you build this camaraderie with those people that you're standing next to like nothing else. You know, They were literally watching my back and I was watching theirs the whole time we were inside. So that was a little bit different, even though I went to work at penitentiaries and stuff you know, for the feds, it still was never that violent as it was at Missouri State Penn. I think that that's one of the things that, that is hidden most from society as a whole is the violent nature in prisons, in many prisons. It's not everyone, because mm -hmm. especially at the federal level that, you know, they've got some very low security type events at some of these places. I mean, it is incredibly dangerous for staff and also for the inmates themselves because i wrote in my notes here death is a reality in prison and, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's caused by suicide and sometimes right. it's caused by homicide explain for for our listeners if you would what that reality does to the correctional officer what what does that do to you mentally what what does it do as far as your dealings with uh the inmates you know, um, you don't notice a lot of what happens to you. 
and I'm a changed person from what I was when I walked in. There's no way you could say you not. But I remember, I think the first thing that really grabbed my attention was an inmate who had laid down and cut his femoral arteries to commit suicide on a bunk. He was successful by the time, you know, the inmates on either side didn't say anything. You know, you do 30 minute rounds. Well, he'd probably planned it right. But when I walked in that cell, the blood went up over the edge of my boots. I did not know that the human body had that much blood in it. And I grew up on a farm. I've slaughtered cattle and deer and hogs. And, you know, that, that was not unusual to see blood. But the fact that that was human blood and that there was that much of it threw me back. And so that was the first time I remember this, this change, you know, that started to come over me. Because after that, didn't bother you as much. You forgot about it. And I can't name the number of times I I saw stuff like that or or suicides or killings. I saw a guy sit on top of another guy and, and take a shank that was a foot long and, and drive it through him several times before we could knock him off of him. You know, stuff like that. It it affects you, but you're in an emergency. And you guys, you know, police officer, you understand this. You don't think about it then. It, it doesn't show up usually till much later. Uh, I've got a job to finish. I've got uh, you know rounds to do. I've got to get this cleaned up so we can feed the rest of the inmates. That's always happening in prison. When a killing or a suicide or, or, or a staff assault or anything like that happens, people don't realize the rush is to get everything cleaned back up and get prison back to normal. Because when prison's not normal, more problems happen. Well, I think I've asked this. Yeah, I think I've asked this to several guests before that have worked in law enforcement that's that's abnormal it's an abnormal situation surely a conversation has to be had that you need to talk that out uh, men- mental health wise therapy wise and i have to assume that's not happening or didn't happen for you in that instance there's multiple facets to that one is we did talk it out uh, we talked it out amongst us it yeah. usually lasted a few minutes but it wasn't hey how are you feeling about that It was usually probably some jokes that I can't repeat on here because that's how we dealt with that was that dark humor at that moment. But like a professional setting, that didn't happen. No, no. But that camaraderie that you get, you know, your buddy comes by and, you know, slaps you on the back. (laughs) I remember one time I, this is going to be gross, but we had an inmate that had killed another one. And of course, we're trying to get everything back together. And I have tried all day long on this unit to eat my lunch. And I have not got there. It's been this horrible day. And I finished it with this at three o'clock, you know, and I get the orderlies out. They're getting mops. They're spreading blood everywhere, trying to mop it up. And I reach in the office, grab my bologna sandwich, and I'm sitting there eating it while I'm watching the orderlies do all this cleanup. And one of my buddies walks up, he pats me on the back, kind of gives me this little shoulder hug. And he goes, are you okay? I was like, why? Yeah. What's wrong? He goes, you're eating a sandwich standing in the middle of this blood pool. And I was like, I was hungry. <laughs> you know, it wasn't abnormal at that point. You know, we laugh about it, but we, we, we laugh in order to get through the intenseness of what you just experienced. Right, right. So it affects your whole family. My daughter, she became, got a master's degree. She's a professor now. Um, but during her dissertation, uh, she interviewed a bunch of correctional staff and, and asked them questions about how they deal with mental health and wellness and all this stuff. And one of the biggest things that I took from what she found out was correctional staff equate 
mental health with mental health problems. Talking about mental health, when you say, hey, how's your mental health? Well, my mental health's fine. I don't have any problems. And almost everybody to the T talked to her about that. Well, have you been to, you know, the employee wellness deal? I don't need that. I don't have any mental health problems. So there's this, and it's perceived throughout corrections that mental health is something that we deal with, with the inmates. You know, mental health isn't something that we deal with with ourselves. And we become very cliquish. My wife will tell you that she almost hates going out and the, you know, the Christmas party and stuff like that because she gets pushed off to the side. And even though I've seen these people 320 days this year, 16 hours a day, that's who I go talk to. And then she's left standing over here and we're all talking about work. And so there is this conversation and that's kind of how we deal with it, but I'm not saying that's how we deal with it well. There is a lot of suicide, officer suicide and corrections. It's one of those things where the, the gallow humor often mm-hmm. comes about, not because people are demented, but because the, the need for emotional release. In this case, it's emotional release through laughter. I can remember a, a suicide that I was caught in on, and this guy actually climbed into his bathtub, closed the drain, and then he slid his wrist, and he, he sat there in this bathtub, and as he's bleeding out, he's got shampoo bottles in both hands, and he's pumping it kind of like you do at the doctor's office when you go to have your blood taken. The amount of blood, if you stop it up, it ain't going nowhere. I mean, right. it's deep in this thing. It was a, a, a surreal scene and i can remember one of the uh the officers that was there with us say hey i think i found out why 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 this guy did this and you know we're all thinking hey you know we're, he found a suicide note well what he actually had found was a a city calendar that had a picture of one another officer on one of the months and he was hey, this has got to be what caused this thing right here well it was how ugly right. our guy was you know and everybody <laughs> laughed but it was that release of tension and you could actually feel things go down And so I want to ask you, it had to be a very unique experience because I've processed a lot of crime scenes, but processing a crime scene inside of a prison when you truly have to be situationally ready to handle other threats, that had to be a challenge for folks on the correctional side. It is an absolute challenge that, and only in the last few years have they started bringing some of our own people in teaching them ERT so they can do the crime scene on the spot when it happens. Before, if it was a crime scene that was going to get prosecuted, we had to stop it and wait for people to come in. Now we'll process it ourselves, but the prison doesn't stop. There is no stopping it, and they don't care that that guy died. They don't care that that inmate's laying there in a pool of blood. They care that it's 4.15 and every day I eat supper at 4.15. So now I've got inmates who are getting rowdy over in this unit because I haven't gotten the ability to feed them yet. You see what I'm saying? And I don't think people understand. I don't think they understand that part of it. So it starts to become a compounding problem then. You've got this initial problem, but it starts to cause other ones down the line. And is somebody taking advantage of this chaos to sell more drugs to stab the person on the other end of the prison are they trying to make an escape during all this i mean we can't stop any of those other jobs and now we've got all this to deal with i just don't think people understand how involved we are in those crime scenes you know one quarter i worked in a medical unit i got a uh, 
special recognition for bagging 21 inmates very well. Now, officers, most of the time when they roll up on a crime scene, they may have to secure the crime scene, the basic officer, until everybody else gets there and cleans it up. We clean up our own stuff. I'm the one that has to secure the cell or secure the evidence, get this inmate bagged up, get the orderlies over there and clean up the blood and make sure it doesn't look like a problem when everybody else can return to work. Uh, So we don't ever get to see it and then walk away from it. Until it's finished, it's finished, which I think is something people don't know about us. You brought up, hey, you have to be concerned about, are they doing this here to to hide an escape attempt somewhere Mm -hmm. else in the prison? And uh, we actually had my mom on here uh, a few episodes ago. And my granddaddy was a Georgia State Patrolman. And mm-hmm. so she was talking about when she was growing up, uh, how they lived near a prison and, and he would have to go out at night on occasion for escapes. And what that did to her, you know, was that she and her two brothers, they slept with, you know, hammers and stuff like that because they were scared. But when we when we look at that as a society, the, the bad people are all bottled up in, in these prisons when a little bit of escapes, it causes this. I don't want to say irrational perhaps overstated fear a lot of times in society because this thing that I have ignored and denied the existence of for so long has now become much more real to me. But that is a reality for you guys every single day. Yes. And it goes, it affects our personal lives. And my kids will tell you to work with 20, 30, 40, 100 child molesters and and watch the way they act and what they do and then come home and your kid wants to go spend the night somewhere or you're not going anywhere. So my kids, they'll tell you that I was very controlling. As we talk as adults, it wasn't that I was doing that to be mean. I was doing that to protect them because I know the boogeyman exists. Mm-hmm. You see so yes. many people out there that get to walk around and don't know the boogeyman exists. They've never seen him eye to eye. I've fed him. I've looked in his eyes. Uh, You know, I've had him threaten me. And most people don't go through that. And then I have to walk home and try to be a normal parent, try to be a normal husband. And that's that's the tough. That was the tough part of my job. I think I handled a lot of the internal stuff pretty well because I had the ability to detach and look at myself from a distance and say, are you doing okay?" not going to say I'm perfect, but I think the hard part of my job was not letting that part of the job go outside with me and it affecting my family. And they'll tell you, I mean, they're very open about it. She's done dissertations on it and a couple of podcasts with some other people about it. I look back at it now and it's kind of crazy, you know, that I was that worried about it, but I had seen it. How do you walk away from that? In another interview that I heard you do, one of the things that you had said you did that you think helped with your health was you actually wrote poetry and you read some of the, the, the poetry part that really got to me was where you got to talk about washing your hands and trying Mm -hmm. to get the dirt off. I don't think that people outside the profession understand that the psychological part of taking a shower and it's it's like this this cleansing time you know what i'm saying it's like for for example when i when i worked the road uh one of the first things i would do was i would go and get my car washed and i wanted the Mm -hmm. car to be clean because it it sets a good example it shows that you're squared away all that stuff but it was also this mindset that hey okay game's on right taking that 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 shower and washing your hands 
at the end of work is an attempt to say, okay, the game's over. Now I need to transition over to my dad role or to my parent role. Mm-hmm. But, but sometimes you see things that it, it, you just can't turn off in your head. It's those days when you walk into the garage and kick your boots off and you drop all your clothes directly into the washer because you don't want that going in your house. Prisons are dirty. I mean, they're clean. We work very hard to make them sanitary. I'm not going to say they're not sanitary, but anytime you put the handrails at the mall aren't clean, you know, you got a thousand people in there, the blood and the cussing and the dirtiness, you just feel dirty when you walk out of there and it feels like after a while that it becomes part of you and you fight that. I don't want to be dirty. I don't want to be uh, like everybody else, but it does get inside you and you feel it. And that's kind of what that poem was talking about. Do I ever get clean of this? Yeah, I, I won't ever forget it. I'm retired three years and I love what I do. And, you know, I still get to help people with this, but those memories are still there. I've seen things that most humans haven't, and I don't want them to. Do you find that writing through the poetry or the things that you do on your website, because you are an author, you've, you've written books, and also you're hosting the podcast, you find that mm-hmm. has been uh, a good source of therapy for you? Uh, the, definitely the poetry. I did that at work a lot of times and, you know, a, a line here and a line there just trying to make that work. And it gave me what it did was give me a focus. And that's part of probably what saved me in my mental health was I always had a focus outside of work. I always knew I was going to write something or, or do something like that. Didn't know what it was. My original job in the Army was a journalist. Uh, part of the reason why that didn't go well for me. I've always known that I was, I didn't want that to be my entire identity. Okay. And so the writing absolutely did. I I competed in Scottish Highland games for many years, uh, strength events. And so that's what we did on the weekends. You know, we'd go to those and have fun and and get away from prison because that has nothing to do with prison, throwing a telephone pole. So I think that's part of what saved me. Now, what I do now isn't as much about me as it is about giving back. I I do this podcast because I want to give back. I want to open that conversation. I want to say thank you to all the people that helped me over the years. More than any other job, I think you realize I did not make it through 29 years of prison without help. There was always somebody watching my back. There was always somebody helping me make that next step. There was people I'll never know were watching a camera to make sure that I was safe that day. So for me, what I'm doing now is more about trying to give back to that community. And part of what I've learned is how global this community is. Counted up the other day, I'm up to 81 different countries that have listened to the Prison Officer Podcast. And when you think about it, Everywhere in the world, there's there's a CO, whatever they call them, but there's a CO sitting in a broken chair <laughs> watching a jail somewhere, <laughs> you know, uh, every country does that. And so it's been really interesting to learn that part of it because I thought I was just doing it for, you know, the people I knew, and it's grown so much bigger than that. It really is one of the most under-recognized parts of the criminal justice system. And uh, Mm -hmm. I've mentioned this before on our podcast, John Douglas, who was one of the original members uh, of the FBI's behavioral science unit in his book, Mindhunter, he talks about how when he came into law enforcement, he was idealistic. 
and, and how he thought that uh, w- with enough input and enough work and enough therapy, we could turn bad people into good people. And, and in many cases, we can, because in a lot of cases, uh, th- these are people that made a bad decision. And like you said, they just want to go home. But there is that segment. There is that segment, and he he puts it eloquently. He says, you know, we as a society have to decide what we're going to do with those people who can't be fixed. And and what we as a society have decided is, by and large, we're going to put them in prisons. But in order for them to stay there and not be a danger to society at large, we need people like you and the people that you work with to provide that service. But that service comes at a cost. It comes at a monetary cost. It costs a lot of money to incarcerate people for a long period of time. Yes. It it costs a lot psychologically for the people who have to do it day in and day out. Going back to it, I worry as a society what the decrease in the number of qualified applicants is going to do to our ability to keep those people that need to be locked up, locked up. Absolutely. I just had a conversation a few weeks ago, and I hear this a lot. Now, I think somebody mentioned on that last program that you had, you get a lot of these older staff members who are like, well, I told them what to do, but they're not listening to me, so I'm done with them. And there's this, there's this thought out there. And I had a conversation with somebody, and I said, you do realize there's nobody else. You don't get to pick from another group here. These are the people who are coming up, and these are the people somebody's got to protect society. And it's your job before you walk out that door to teach them. If you have to stop them and shake them and say, hey, this is what we do, we've got to do that. We can't just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, well, it'll work out. It won't work out. There is things behind those walls that we don't want in society. Yes, I want society to know how hard correctional officers work. I want them to know that it's not a nice job and that we deal with a lot of stuff, but I don't want society dealing with the boogeyman in their front yard. And we have no other choice. We have to bring up this next generation. I I want them to be aware of what's behind those walls, but I don't want them affected by what's behind those walls. And and it's only by doing our job correctly that we can make that happen as as a profession but there's a there's a flip side to this so and this is the part i'm going to raise my hand because this is part i struggle with okay most of the folks that are behind those prison walls will eventually make it back into society legally not not the escape way legally they they will be returned to society and this is a, a much bigger problem than we can solve on this podcast but we have to do something to make that transition stick so that they become productive members of society, that they don't take what has happened to them and what was learned in prison and use that to prey upon the people who are in society again. As a correctional officer, your job primarily is about safety, the safety of your fellow correctional officers and the safety of the inmates. But Mm -hmm. there are these programs in place, and I just don't know if we're doing enough, if we're investing enough on that side of things so that we don't get those people back and become a problem for you again. The Federal Bureau of Prisons budget for last year was $8.3 billion. We're investing enough. The resources are there. The people are there. Where we spend some of that money is a huge part of the problem. This is all my opinion. You know, drug treatment is 
a very lucrative business to get into. Now, I've seen rehabilitation work, and I want to tell people probably part of the change that happened in me is I am not I'm not really into the rehabilitation part. I'm into the correctional officer part and how to keep them safe. But throughout my career, I have seen some programs. One of them was at a, a state level facility and those inmates up to, I think we had up to 1.150 inmates who went out every day and they went to work in the community at a factory. One of the factories at the time was uh, uh, Tyson Foods or something like that. They made turkeys. A lot of people don't want that job. It was a tough job, okay? But these inmates got paid the same as everybody else in there did. Those inmates could even be promoted while they were working there. Um, a quarter, of, and don't quote me specifically, but something like a quarter of their money went to uh, the victim's fund. A quarter of it went to their commissary account, quarter went to savings, and a quarter went to uh, paying the state back for the busing and the officer and all that stuff. Why I say all that is the thing I saw with that program was, and this is minimum security at this level, the last couple of years of their incarceration, they could do that. And when they'd walk out the door, they had 10, 15, I think I saw a couple of them that had $20,000 saved up. Now, here's wow. the key. $20,000 will let you buy a used car. It'll let you get insurance for it. It'll let you pay first and last month's rent. It'll let you pay the $50 water because you've got bad credit from being in prison. It'll let you do all this stuff and start anew. Most of the time, and yes, there's programs, but most of the time when we kick them out, we kick them back to the same area they dro fell out of and we don't give them the resources that they need to start that life without asking somebody else. So they're going to go back to what they knew. Hey, I need some money this week. I got to get rent. I'll sell some drugs for you. And, and so we repeat this process. Another good one I saw was um, they bring them into prison and the last couple of years they can, oh, it's on computer screens with a wheel and they learn how to get their CDL from a computer. And then the last few months they're in, they get to go out, get their real CDL. They get to go to an interview with trucking companies, and these trucking companies come in and hire them based on their skills and scores and stuff that they've shown, and trucking companies are hurting for people to work for them. And then yes. you've got this inmate who not only has a great job that will buy rent, that'll buy all the stuff he you know, needs in life, you're putting him on the biggest GPS tracker you've ever seen in your life, <laughs> and you're getting him out of his neighborhood. Uh, there's been some successes with that. But that's not where we're putting most of our money. Those are here and there. I don't think we look at what it is that those people need when they come out. They need what I need. They need what you need. They need a start where they don't owe anybody. Because if you owe somebody in those neighborhoods, it's always coming back. You know, when we look at drug and alcohol treatment programs, one of the things that they say in order to be successful is that you need to remove yourself from the people that you, you were with when you develop these issues and you need to remove yourself from the context of where it was developed people places things those things those three things yes absolutely and so I, I, I am by no means a bleeding heart okay but i am practical and i am a realist these folks are coming back into society and i would have to think I would have to think that when they're involved in programs like that, they are much less a threat to correctional officers on the inside and Absolutely. to their fellow inmates because they have those programs that they're working towards. 
every day. They have something to lose. They have something to look forward to. They have goals. They have dreams. They have the same thing. All the rest of us, you take away my family, my income, my life, my dreams, my goals. There's no telling what kind of guy you're going to end up with. And it works the same for them. Some people are going to call me crazy, but you know, as far as the drug treatment and stuff, most of the time when I see an inmate come into prison, I can tell you whether or not they're coming back because they're humbled. They have decided I'm not doing this anymore. And that that person is going to mean they can't get caught up in something, but that person is going to work their ass off to get back out there. And you don't have to bring the program to them. They're going to find it. Uh, they want it. And so that's something I've seen over the years. I, I've seen so many inmates that have just been pushed through some of these programs like 10 times. No change. Yes. Well, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> yes. You know, let's do something different. Uh, but at some point we have to say, okay, this this person has no desire to change. Absolutely. We, we have to be selective. We're, we're going to start wrapping things up, but I have to bring this one to you because this one has kind of been in the news recently. Okay. Uh, Susan Smith was the uh, the young lady, and I use the term lady very loosely when I'm talking about her, back in the 90s that drove her car into the lake with her two young sons still strapped into the car seats. And then she mm-hmm. had blamed it uh, on a black male. It kidnapped him. Well, she's coming up for parole next year. And one of the things that, that she has been looking for, she has been writing and reaching out to family members to write letters on her behalf so that she can show the parole board that she has family support, a support system in place outside so that she's less likely to, to reoffend. And I would have to imagine that for long-term prisoners, that support system, it, it erodes away. I mean, people die, mm-hmm. people move away, they lose that connection. And to me, the, those type people uh, would be the ones that, that I would be really worried about from both an officer safety perspective, but also a, a suicide perspective. Because like you said, a th- that lack of hope makes it dangerous for, for everybody around. Absolutely. There is a lot provided for them if they want it. You, you do see the difference in the inmates who have families that are involved and the ones that don't, probably more so than ever before. Because, you know, a lot of our jails and it's coming into the state systems with the tablets uh, where they can actually do some video visiting. If you've got a poor family and you fell out in St. Louis and your family lives in Tucson, uh, they can't drive up there and see you on the weekends. But you're going to do prison where you fell. But now you can get on a tablet and you can have that interaction with the family. Phone calls and used to it was just letters. I mean, that's all it was. So they're also doing a lot more things at the lower custody levels about involving the families. I've been around some of the camps where we had family days. And, you know, for a kid to get to come in there on a weekend and spend an hour playing basketball with his dad is huge. Now, the flip side of that is you moms out there who have... Uh, a husband in prison don't take the kids every christmas because they shouldn't be spending christmas in prison which is what i always hated seeing for them to have that interaction i think is great and it does build those bonds and it does give probably a sense of identity uh to those kids that they may not have because there's a, a, a hole in their life and they don't know where it's at and they don't understand it and they shouldn't understand it, but they don't. Um, so I think there's some stuff out there that we do and we're getting better at it, but it always, it all comes down to choices that inmate either chooses 
that he's going to get better and take advantage of it, or he chooses he's going to go down the other path and and continue to be a criminal. I have to ask uh, one last question here. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a news story that came out uh, the past couple of weeks about a sheriff's office in the state of Georgia. This sheriff's office has had over 30 of their deputies, almost all of them correctional officers, arrested over the past two or three years. And almost mm-hmm. all of them were arrested for bringing contraband into the corrections environment. Yeah. For, first of all, why is it so important I mean, outside the fact that it's illegal to possess drugs and that type thing, why it's so important in the correctional setting to stop that contraband from being introduced? And secondly, how is it inmates, prisoners are able to talk law enforcement professionals into doing something illegal? Right. You know, this all starts with training and uh, when that person walks through the door, you've got to be honest with them and you've got to talk about manipulation. Manipulation happens in all forms throughout the prison. You have brought some of the best manipulators in the world and put them in one spot. That's how they've spent their life is manipulating people. And so you can't expect that these officers are going to walk in there and just be able to stand up against that because they've probably never been around it. It's not something you experience in high school and in your family and stuff is this level of manipulation. So we've got to have that training. We've got to talk more about that. And we've got to talk openly about how it starts because everybody thinks it starts with, hey, come here, officer. Uh, I'll give you $500 if you bring in a pack of cigarettes. And it doesn't. And I've, I've told this story before. I was sitting at my desk. I'd brought in some Chinese food, sitting there eating it. I got done. I threw the deal in the trash can. There was two soy sauce packets there. And the inmate walks by. He's doing my orderly. He's cleaning the floor. He goes, hey, can I have those? I was like, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to throw them away. So he takes them and goes off. No big deal, right? So the next day he comes walking through. He's brushing. He's, you know, doing the mopping and stuff. And he says, hey, next time you go get some Chinese food, can you bring a couple more of them in? That was the beginning of manipulation. And that's what we've got to teach them. Because at that point, hey, he hooked me with that. Now, next time, hey, can you bring me a slice of pizza in? Then it's going to be a pack of cigarettes. And I'm going to say, well, that's illegal. I can't bring in cigarettes. Well, you brought me in pizza and that's against the rules. So do it or I'll tell. So we end up with this where it just works up to some things that you can't even imagine what people bring in, you know, cartons and drugs and sex and all this stuff. And I guess if there are correctional officers or police officers listening, the number one thing, and I was in a supervisory position, the number one thing you can do when you think you're being manipulated is walk over to your supervisor and say, hey, I think I'm being manipulated. Let me handle it at that level and we'll take care of it. You won't get in trouble. And if you do, you know, if you if, if it's went so far that you do get in trouble, you're still in a public trust position and there are consequences to what we do. So you may rightfully get in some trouble, but you're not going to end up with having that on your having that on your conscience for the rest of your life that you brought this stuff in, that this stuff may have caused a killing, you know, because that's what happens mm-hmm. with drugs. That's what happens with cigarettes. That's what happens with Tupperware bowls that get left in prison. You know, you probably don't know this, but if there's one of something in prison, it's valuable. You know, I have seen a stabbing over a Rubbermaid cup because one football team had won that year and that's what color that was 
you know, and one guy wanted it and the other one had it. So anything that gets brought in there becomes a huge problem for us. But with your your question, it, it starts with the manipulation and the training and getting people to understand and expect they're going to try to manipulate you. And the only way you can take care of it is to be honest and open about it when it happens. And we'll put a stop to it then. The officer only has to, to trip up once. Yes. It, and it starts to become an issue. The prisoner can fail day after day. After, they only have to get lucky once uh, in order right. to be successful. And it's unfortunate because I do believe the people that come into this profession, by and large, overwhelmingly want to do good. Mm-hmm. They want to protect society. They want to do what's right. For those in the profession, not only do we want to say thanks, but we also want to say, hey, keep your guard up. Yes. You have value. Uh, what you're doing has value. It's not worth sacrificing for being popular or being well, whatever the case may be. It just, just just keep your guard up. Man, Mike, we really appreciate you being here today. Fascinating. You made me rethink uh, some of my favorite movies like The Green Mile and Shawshank <laughs> Redemption. Because there may be there may be a kernel of truth in there that that's not a real reality necessarily of what's going on. But thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, thanks for what you do. Real quickly before we do sign off, what's uh-huh. the name of your podcast again? The Prison Officer Podcast, www.theprisonofficer.com. And if you want to reach out to me, it's Mike at theprisonofficer.com. I would love for you to stop by and take a listen. We'll we'll make sure we include that in our show notes uh, because I, I do think it's important that society has an understanding of what you do to keep them safe. Because if they do, then I think there's greater support and there's value in that. So thanks again for being here. Man, I, I find this stuff fascinating, man. Man, I too is everything he's talking about is very enlightening. But just the fact that manipulation can start with two packs of soy sauce that is eye opening to me. And you're going to get more of those types of things by listening to Mike's podcast, the Prison Officer Podcast. Again, we'll put all those links in the show notes, and you'll be able to find that on our website between the lines with virtualacademy.com. Mike, thank you so much for taking some time to just recount and you know give some insight into what your life was like inside those prison walls and what life is like for you now. So uh, thank you so much for being open and honest with us today. We certainly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on here and keep up the good work on, on your podcast. I love listening to you guys too. So uh, I appreciate getting to be part of this. Mm-hmm.